is Psalm chapter 90, verses 1 to 6. Verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations, before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, Return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has gone, just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it's dry and withered. Jeremiah 32, verses 17 to 27. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of the fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty in deed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. You have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and to this day in Israel and among all mankind and have made a name for yourself as at this day. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and outstretched arm, and with great terror. And you gave them this land which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they entered and took possession of it, but they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster to come upon them. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it, and because of the sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, buy the field or money and get witness, though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh, is anything too hard for me. Let's pray together. So last week, we examined God's wisdom, his omniscience, God's unlimited and exhaustive knowledge of all things past, present, and future. And this morning, we're going to be examining God's omnipotence, his power that reigns throughout the universe. There is not one corner of the universe over which God does not call out mine. God is sovereignly in control of everything within his creation. Robert Raymond explains that, that when the scriptures in, what the scriptures intend when they ascribe omnipotence to God is that God has the power to do whatever it takes power to do. In other words, God can do and God does all of his holy will. And according to G.I. Packer, power is as much God's essence as wisdom is. Omniscience, governing omnipotence, infinite power ruled by infinite wisdom is a basic biblical description of the divine character. 
And he goes on to say that wisdom without power would be pathetic, a broken reed, and power without wisdom would be merely frightening. But God in boundless wisdom and endless power are united, and this makes him utterly worthy of our fullest trust. Now, we, we, we heard this morning, Alicia played for us in the offertory the, the hymn, How Great Thou Art. And this was actually written by Stuart Hine, who was, was a missionary in Romania. And he actually was, was inspired to write this hymn on his missionary travels as he traveled through the Carpathian Mountains. And on one particular outing, he was stranded as a storm brewed in the mountains in the distance. And hearing the mighty thunder echoing through the mountains, he was inspired to write the first verse of the hymn. O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. But then on a further outing, heading through the, the mountain frontier, his, his travels took him through beautiful forests with his friends, and this inspired the second verse. When through the woods and forest glades I wander and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees, when I look down from lofty mountain grandeur and hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze. But then verse 3 came about as he witnessed the salvation of many of their Carpathian mountain dwellers, to those to whom he ministered. And it is here in the third verse that we see God's greatest power most profoundly displayed. And when I think that God, his son, not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. So in this hymn, we see three amazing displays of God's almighty power. God's power in creation, God's power in providence, and God's power in salvation. And throughout God's word, we see testimony given to God's omnipotence. And as Robert Raymond explains, the Holy Scriptures consistently and repeatedly represent God's works of creation, providence, and redemption to be the effects of his almighty power. And it's those three aspects of God's omnipotence that we're going to examine this morning. God's power in creation, God's power in providence, and God's power in redemption. Now, God's power in creation would seem to be the most logical place to start because, after all, that's where the Bible starts, in Genesis 1.1. So if you turn with me there, please, to Genesis 1, verse 1, says, In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. Now, we, we, we hear this sentence, and it seems to us to be such a simple sentence, but think about its profundity. That God simply spoke. 
He simply spoke his creation into being. One moment, there was nothing except God. And then at his word, he created the entire universe. But God's creation is also right there at the end. It's in Revelation 4, chapter 11. Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God's creation is at the beginning, God's creation is at the end, and God's creation is everywhere in between. One day God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth. Isaiah 65, 17 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But until that time, one of the the means of grace that God gives us is the beauty of his creation for us to meditate on and to behold his glory. So when, when you drive down the road and see the mountains that are around you and see the trees, don't take it for granted. Pause and think about the fact that your God made all of these things. So often we take it for granted and we, we, want, to, we want to deny that, that God really is the creator. Not only is, is the creation evidence, it also bears testimony. It bears testimony against those who would deny him. That's why we read in Revelation, sorry, in Romans chapter 1, Verse 20, for his, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. There is nobody on the face of God's earth that, is with, that has any excuse for rejecting the God of all creation. Nobody. Even the person who has never heard the gospel, God's word says, is guilty for rejecting him because they have rejected the God of creation. Sinful man tries to deny God as creator outright. And it's not even just since Darwin developed his theory of evolution. During the time that the Old Testament was written, Babylonianism claimed Baal to be the creator. In New Testament times, Roman mythology credited Jupiter. And in the 6th century, Islam was spawned, claiming Allah as the creator. But it really wasn't until the publication of Darwin's Origin of Species in 1859 that anybody seriously tried to rule out the role of a deity in creation. And Darwin had really three main propositions in his book, which is, outlined in Philip Johnson's book, Darwin on Trial. The first one is that species change and that new species have appeared during the long course of Earth's history. The second is that this evolutionary process accounts for nearly all of the diversity of life because all living things descended from a very small number of common ancestors or perhaps a single microscopic ancestor. And three, this process was guided by natural selection or survival of the fittest 
ruling out the need for a creator. Now, of course, we do have evidence. We can see evidence for changes within species. We see this as, as small changes creep in through time. But it is shocking that this theory would ever be considered valid. It's shocking, given the fact that, that among many other things, there is a complete absence of transitional species in the fossil record. Nothing. Nothing. There is nothing in the fossil record that is something that is, is partway between a fish and an amphibian, or between an amphibian and a reptile, or between a reptile and a bird. There is nothing. It's not a missing link. There are no links. None in the entire fossil record. But Despite this fact, it is still, Darwin's theory is still taught as law. It's taught as law in the school system. It's, it's taught as law in our public media. So that when we believe in a literal six-day creation, the world looks at us and laughs. But scripture clearly testifies that it is God who is the creator. Why is it that people don't believe what the Bible says? Simply because they don't have faith. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. We accept that the God of the Bible is the creator through faith. And beloved, it takes far more faith to believe Darwin's theory than it does simply to believe that God did what God said God did. So if you've got your finger there still in Genesis 1, let's just quickly run over the creation account. In verses 1 to 5, we see that on the first day, God created light, separating light and darkness. And on the second day, God created sky and land, verses 6 to 8. On the third day, God created the oceans and all vegetation, verses 9 to 13. On the fourth day, God created the sun and the moon, verses 14 to 19. On the fifth day, God created the birds and sea creatures, verses 20 to 23. On the sixth day, God created the land creatures and all mankind, verses 24 to 31. And on the seventh day, God rested. We also have the testimony of Psalm 33:6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. And Isaiah 45, 18, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it and established it. I am the Lord, and there is no other. In Job 38, when the Lord replied to Job, who was questioning him, the Lord said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. So we think about mortal men who would seek to 
explain processes that their puny, finite minds have no ability to comprehend. And they do it all the while shaking their fist at Almighty God. And sadly, this has even crept into evangelicalism, into broader evangelicalism. There are those who claim that the days there represent ages, or that there were long gaps between the days. But this denies the clear testimony of Scripture. In fact, I find it interesting that it's amazing how so often the church is 40 or 50 years behind what the rest of the culture is doing. And at a time when those who are within the realm of evangelicalism are starting to grab hold of some evolutionary thought, even the scientific world is actually beginning to reject it. The scientific world is, is, is beginning to see design in creation and to realize that this did not, could not have happened by blind processes. Now, they deny that this is the God of the Bible, but they are also beginning to deny what Darwin actually taught. In our New Testament, in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, which, which deliberately mirrors Genesis 1.1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So in the beginning, Jesus was right there as part of the Trinity. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Later on in verse 14, John identifies the word as Jesus Christ. God's word is effective. God's word will accomplish that which God has ordained that it would do. God speaks and things happen. Turn with me, please, to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, is a, it's, it's a, a favorite verse that's used by so-called Jehovah Witnesses or the, the Watchtower Tract Society to claim that Jesus is a created being. Verse 15 says, He, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so when they look at that, they say, Oh, see, Jesus was firstborn. But what they're neglecting is the fact that firstborn can also and does here refer to the rights and privileges. That's why in, in, uh, in Psalm 89, David is referred to as a firstborn. Verse 29 of Psalm 89 says, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. But David was not the firstborn son. He was the youngest son. And so when, when, when the Jehovah Witnesses do this, they're not only 
ignoring what the scripture is actually teaching, but they're trying to pull this verse out of context, and they're not reading on to what it actually says in the rest of the passage. Look at verse 16. For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now, if you believe that Jesus was a created being, you now have a problem. Because this says all things. And you know how the Jehovah Witnesses try to get around this? They actually insert the word other in this passage. Now, they do it in brackets. They acknowledge that it's not there in the original manuscript, but they insert several times in this passage, they insert the word other. So they're saying, by him, all other things were created. By him, all other things were created. Completely changing the meaning of the text. But this is Jesus. Jesus created all things. He is the eternal, uncreated Son of God. So Jesus, who created all things, he is the God that we worship. This brings me to, to my second point, God's power in providence. God's power in providence. Look there at verse 17. And he, it's still Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Parallel verses in Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by his word of power. That's why Jesus was able to sleep in the boat through the raging storm in Matthew chapter 8. While the, the disciples, even though they were seasoned sailors, were terrified. Jesus was able to be there asleep in the boat because he was still and is still the omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient God ruling in the heavens. Think about it for a second. While Jesus walked through his creation, he was still somehow eternally, sovereignly upholding the universe. He was still everywhere. That blows my mind. This is the God that we serve. This is the God that we serve. While Jesus was walking on the earth, he was still holding every molecule in place, holding every planet and every, around every star in the entire universe in their proper place, holding the planet earth together, holding every molecule, molecule of everything together, holding every proton, neutron, and electron of every atom in his creation together by his omnipotent power. It's enough to make your brain spin. 
C.H. Spurgeon mar marveled at God's providence. He said, I cannot comprehend it. I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. And that every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens, that the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. This is our sovereign God upholding the universe in his providence. Now, when we think of God's providence, we, we tend to think of, of God's provision. And that's because the word providence comes from the Latin word providentia, which means foresight or precaution. Providence was a word that was, was first used uh, around the year 1600, and it refers to, to God as a generous caretaker. God as a generous caretaker who doesn't just provide for our needs, he does so abundantly. And he doesn't just cause the, the, the sun to shine on the righteous and the rain to fall on the righteous, but he does so for the wicked as well. God provides the very breath of those who are living in active disobedience, in active rebellion against them. But he doesn't just provide for them either. He provides for every need of every living thing on the entire planet. And if there were life on other planets, which I'm not convinced there is, he would be providing for all of that life too. God's sovereignty is exhaustive and it extends to every single corner of his creation. Turn please to Psalm 104, which, which gloriously de declares God's providence in his creation. Psalm 104. In verses 10 to 12, we see that God makes springs to gush forth in the valleys, giving drink to every beast of the field. There in verses 14 and 15, we see that God causes the grass to grow for livestock. And he gives plants for men to cultivate, cultivate that we might receive food from the earth and wine to gladden our hearts and oil to make our faces shine and bread to strengthen our hearts. In verses 16 to 18, we see that God waters the trees in which the bird, birds make their nests and the mountains in which the mountain goats live and as do the rock badgers. In verses 19 to 23, we see that God made the sun and the moon and the darkness in which young lions hunt, seeking their food from God. And he also made the, the sea, verses 24 to 26, which teems with life. And he made the sea in which Leviathan frolics. Verses 27 and 28, God's entire creation looks to him for their food in due season. And then in 29 and 30, when God takes away their breath, they die and return to the dust. And then when he sends forth his spirit, he creates new life. And all of this causes praise to well up in the heart of the psalmist. 
Verse 31, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. And verse 33, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. Is this your response? Is this your response to God's provision? If this is, if you understand that God provided the very meal that you eat, then you wouldn't sit down even to the most bland of meals and say ho hum. You would rejoice with thanksgiving to the Lord our God. But the grumbling children of Israel questioned God and they spoke against him. In Psalm 78, 19, the psalmist writes that they question, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? Is God able to provide for your needs? Is God able? Now, I'm not just talking about your wants here. I don't know about you, but I'm actually very thankful that many of the things that I, that I wanted, God withheld. Because in his omniscience, he knew what I needed and how that far superseded anything that I wanted. Jesus exhorts us not to be anxious in the face of God's providence. He says that we are to trust in the God who provides. He says in Matthew 6.25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And then in verse 26, he presents birds as an example, saying, They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of far more value than they? So Jesus here is arguing, again, from the lesser to the greater, using the lesser example to prove the greater. If God looks after lowly animals, surely he will look after the people who are made in his image. And Jesus says similarly in Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 and 31, that a sparrow does not fall to the ground apart from our Father. And he says, Fear not, therefore, you are of far more value than many sparrows. Jesus says there that even the very hairs of our head are numbered. God is caring for us intimately, exhaustively, sovereignly, omnipotently, and omnisciently. God is caring for us. But sinful man tries to deny this too. They try to take credit for what they have accomplished, or they give credit to some false God or to Mother Nature. And we're all tempted to forget God. We give thanks at the beginning of our meal as a reminder that this has come from God. Remembering it is the Lord who has provided for our meal every bit every bit as much as he provided manna for Israel in the wilderness. 
God warned Israel against forgetting him and his provision in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Please turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 8. He reminded them in verse 3 how he let them hunger in order to reveal their hearts. And then he fed them with manna in order to show them that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And he was leading them into a fruitful land, a land of flowing with brooks and water, fountains and springs, flowing in the hills and the valleys, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and figs and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, and you will lack nothing, verses 7 to 9. They were to eat and to be full and to bless the Lord, their God, for the good that he had given them. But he warned them not to forget that once they were full, once they had eaten their fill, that they were not to forget. In verses 12 to 14, verse 17 provides a warning for us all. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and my might have gotten me this wealth. And what about you? Do you take credit for anything that you have? Did your wisdom get you the job that you now have? No, it, your job came through God's providence. Did your effort get you the food on the table? No, ultimately it comes as a gift from God's providence. Did your charm and good looks get you your beautiful wife? No, she was a gift of God's providence. Did your goodness and wisdom get you your salvation? No, this was also a gift of God's providence. And this brings me to my final point, where we see God's power in redemption. God's power in redemption. God doesn't just provide for the physical needs of his creatures. He also provides for their spiritual needs. He provides salvation for his elect. Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22. In this, some would say, infamous passage of Scripture, we see how God told Abraham, God commanded Abraham to take his son Isaac and to go to Mount Moriah and to offer him as a burnt offering. And one can only imagine the grief that would have welled up in Abraham's heart as he saddled the donkey and as he gathered the wood for the fire and as he took his son up the mountain. When Isaac asked where the lamb for the offering was, Abraham replied, God will provide for himself a lamb. So when they came to the place, Abraham built the altar and laid the wood in order and bound his son, his only precious son, through his wife, Sarah, the heir of promise. Abraham obediently bound his son 
and laid him there on the altar and took the knife up in his hands about to slay his son. And it was only at the last second when a voice, the voice of the angel of the Lord came and said, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw a ram caught in a thicket by his, his antlers. And so Abraham took the ram and offered him there as a sacrifice instead of his son. And he said, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. That's why we sing in the song, Jehovah Jireh, our provider. More accurately, Yah, Yahweh, our provider. God has provided a lamb. And all of this, of course, points to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The sinless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this, this is the most powerful example that we have of God's providence, of God's omnipotence in providing salvation for sinful rebels like you and me. It wasn't because of our righteousness. It wasn't because of our wisdom or our strength or any good works that we would do later on that we were saved. God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. We were dead in our sins and our trespasses. Ephesians 2. But lest we try to separate the work of the Son from that of the Father, Jesus said in John 10 that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And in verses 17 to 18, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge have I received from my father. Jesus Christ had the power to lay down his life and the power to raise it up again. But it's not just God the Father and God the Son who are actively involved in redemption. It's not just Jesus standing there, knocking, waiting impotently at the door of your heart, waiting for you to turn. It is all three members of the Trinity actively, powerfully, omnipotently involved in every aspect of our creation, of, rather of our salvation. The Holy Spirit also plays a powerful and indispensable role in our salvation. Jesus said in John 3.3, 3, unless one is born again, one cannot 
see the kingdom of God. And then verses 5 to 8, he explains that this is a work of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who does the work of regeneration, of taking out our heart of stone, a rebellious heart that was bent against God, and places in us a, 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 a willing heart of obedience and love for God. And this, beloved, this is the most the most profound and most powerful work of God's almighty power. C.H. Spurgeon said that it was easier for God to bring Israel out of Egypt, to split the Red Sea, to make a highway through the pathless wilderness, to drop manna from heaven, to send the whirlwind to drive out kings. It was easier for omnipotence to do all this than to translate a man from the power of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. This is the grandest achievement of omnipotence. The sustenance of the whole universe, I do believe, is even less than this. The changing of a bad heart. The subduing of an iron will. But thanks be to the Father that he has done this for you and for me. Thanks be to the Father who has done that work in our hearts. Thanks be to the Son who has done that work in our hearts and to the Holy Spirit who has done that work in our hearts. But sinful men try to deny this too. They deny that salvation is the sovereign decree of God. In the 4th century, Pelagius held that original sin did not so contaminate human nature that the human will is still able to, and capable of choosing God without God's help. Similarly, in the 16th century, Arminius taught that man is able to respond favorably to God without God's help. Arminius also taught that God looked through the corridors of time and chose those who would choose him. This is a horrible twisting of Romans 8.29, that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. As we saw last week, divine foreknowledge is not just knowing what will happen, it is also decreeing what will happen. It is omniscience and omnipotence tied perfectly together. And this foreknowledge is the intimate, exhaustive knowledge that God has for his elect. It's the same type of knowledge that a husband and wife have of each other, an intimate knowledge. That's what the word means. So what then is the difference between the person who is saved and the person who isn't? If salvation came by anything we did, then we would have ground for boasting. But our salvation, God's word says, is a gift from God. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
And Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is, this is not your doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But just as Arminius taught that we began our salvation, he also taught that we could, by our own will, end our salvation. He taught that we could, by our will, walk away from God. But beloved, again, this does not line up with what Scripture teaches. Hebrews 12 teaches that Jesus Christ is the author and the perfecter of our faith. The author and perfecter. Just as he began a good work in us, he will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. He is faithful. Our salvation does not depend upon our faithfulness. It depends upon God's faithfulness. He who called you is faithful. He is faithful. So we can rejoice. We can rest in the fact that God is holding us tight and will hold us tight to the very end because he is sovereign over our salvation. So what a comfort. What a comfort is this gift from salvation, from first to last. Salvation is a gift from God. So we rejoice. We rejoice and we worship our omnipotent God. Let's pray.